Thanks for tuning into this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. This show is produced by Ben Murray. On today's episode, we spoke with Ian Rivers. Ian's our first guest from the UK. He served for 27 years in the British Army with the majority of that time spent in the Special Air Service Regiment, or SAS. After Ian retired from the military service, he formed a risk management company along with some of his peers just after an incredibly harrowing set of events that we'll talk about today. Ian and I were introduced by a close mutual friend. The first I heard was that Ian was about to row a boat across the Atlantic Ocean. I initially did a double take, much like I imagine you've just done. We'll certainly be talking a lot about that. And at the time this episode is released, Ian will already be somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean, alone and without a GPS. When I get to the Isle of Scillies, the finish point, I want to look back across it and say, I don't want it to end yet. And hopefully the mindfulness of just getting into, the, into that moment will, um, will help me with it. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. Come on your bike. Yeah. Where is it? Uh, it's right out there on, yeah. on uh, 26. What is it? It's uh, Africa Twin. Oh, it's just over there. I saw it, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, is it? Uh, yeah, literally down there. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, Di actually picked it up for me. Please. He knew I was looking for one. He goes, there's an AT up in Connecticut. He goes, do you want me to get it? I was out of town. Yep. Sure. What, you know, are you going to check it out? What's the price? And then he called me back, you know, a couple hours later. He goes, you want it? I said, sure. And uh, here's what my signature looks like. Sign the bill of sale. Give him, give him some cash. <laughs> I'll pay you back. Yeah, so I've got two bikes at home. Got a GS Adventurer. Yeah. That's quite good. 1200 version. <clears throat> and I've had those for like the last 15 years. Mm. And four years ago, I bought a Harley Davidson. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So uh, it's a 2005 15th anniversary edition of Fat Boy. Just before it became too electronic. So it's kind of that era, like before they become what they are, you know, like your bike now is all electronics, isn't it? You know, the suspension, stuff like that. Yeah. So when I was rowing for this challenge, I'd have it in front of me at the end of the, you know, just there. It's like a work of art, really, you know, it's, you've been there shining all the rest of it. And I was like, hey. and every now and then I'll just turn it on and listen to it, then turn it off and just do a bit more rowing. Oh, yeah. Is there like a is there a big secondary market for Harleys over there, or is there yeah. are there any dealers? I'm sure they're marked way up. Yeah. So in in terms of dealerships, you have like you have here Harley Davidsons, and they're they're identical to here. So it yeah. must be a, a franchise. You know what I mean? Like you must have a Harley Davidson that looks like this and it, yeah. as you go in the door. And they a couple of like secondhand dealerships, probably like when you bought your bike, they sell all sorts of bikes. So they sell Harleys as well. But I bought that privately from uh, an old guy, mm. and he had had it for a long time. But you know the Harleys, you, you kind of lay back and your feet are in front of you kind of thing. Yeah. He just had a hip replacement, so he's about 75, and he couldn't lift his leg up. So he needed a bike that was a bit more upright, so his legs were down below him here. Yeah. So he, he put it up for the market, and I'd have been looking for the special edition for like two years, so I'd held out for the special edition. Because it was the uh, gunmetal grey, you know, with the Enola Gay, you know, it was sort of that kind of like the, oh, the yeah. very first Harley Davidson Fat Boy they made yeah. was silver, because it was like of the um, the B fifty two bombers that dropped the uh, the Enola Gay, you know, dropped the bombs on Hiroshima. Yeah. Yeah. It was Harley's sort of like you know throwback to the past, so they kind of like made the colour scheme on the same. 
So the anniversary edition was identical colour scheme to that. And I've been waiting to get one for, you know, I was like, oh, because they did black or that. And I thought, there's lots of black ones out there, but the, the silver ones are the ones to have, like, you know. So I waited forever, you know, it came on. But on prices, I think there's a cartel. <laughs> I'm sure there's a cartel that keep them up here somewhere, like, you know. So yeah. to try and get in there, you're like, how much? Yeah. But for me, they're like a work of art. You know, I like the sound of them. You know, they ride like shit. You know what I mean? You don't want to go anywhere long in them, for sure. But yeah. they are great to look at. I've seen guys on the road in like a serious crosswind and they just, the tail just starts whipping back and forth like, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, waiting for something to happen. So the, the GS I got is phenomenal in road handling. You know, it makes you look like a good rider, yeah. you know, because the way the handlebars are out and, you know, you counter steer with it and all that sort of stuff. It makes you a good rider or makes you look like a good rider or feel like one. But you get on something like a Harley that's old school, you know, I mean, the suspension's like, Dog, dog shit you know the brakes are terrible yeah it's quite enjoyable you know it, it's, it's what I call honest motorbiking you know yeah. that, that kind of like you know you've had an experience when you got off it like you know. yeah so that's that's why I like, I like those you know for sure yeah it's like honest uh, honest rowing which we'll get into <laughs> <laughs> before that we gotta kinda get into some backstory though like, I want to spend plenty of time talking about the trip that's coming up. Yeah, but sure. You, uh, were you like early 90s when you came in? Yeah. So I joined the military when I was 18. Yeah. And I was a skinny, spotty kid. You know, literally, I, I describe it as a kid because I, the hardest thing I've ever did was basic training. That transition from being a civilian into military life, it was like, I, it was a shock. I, it was a real shock and... Um, I've done the commander course, so um, in, in the UK, you know, U, US Marine Corps type stuff. So I've done the course, the, the British version of it. Yeah. And I've done SF selection. Yet I'll always tell everyone the hardest thing I've actually done was that basic training because I was skinny, naive, probably malnutritioned a little bit, you know, when I turned up. And I just found it hard, but really enjoyable, really enjoyable, like, you know. But that was in 1984. Oh, wow. All right. Yeah, so I, I probably look younger than I actually am. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was, trying, I was trying to do a little uh, do a little digging before we met up, so I was uh, yeah. Yeah. trying so, to place you. But. Yeah, so in terms of... So I joined the Army in 1984, um, went to basic training, and, and straight out of basic training, I, I passed out the fittest recruit. So they, they'd introduced a, a test, uh, sort of like a... A, a battlefield fitness test yeah. and even though I was the skinniest kid in the block and all the rest of it I actually passed out in sports science terms the fittest guy I could run the fases do the most press ups I could do the most pull ups and I'd recover the quickest and um, so when I came out of basic training I was, I was scheduled just to go to an ordinary artillery unit in the, in the British Army and I volunteered for a commander course to, go to join 2-9 Commando Regiment Royal Artillery and they're part of um, three commander brigade, which is like your, your like your U.S. Marine Corps as such. So in 1985, I, I did the commander course and joined two nine commando, and and that was hugely rewarding, fantastic thing really. And then six years later, I did um, SF selection, um, 22 Special Air Service selection, and um, luckily passed the commander course first time, and um, I passed SF selection first time. And it was in 1991 that I joined um, the SF world. Yeah. 
So what was life like before? Because you said you were a kid, which I can kind of relate to. I joined when I was 18, too. Yeah. Uh, but were you athletic? Were you – how much of a shock was this? Yeah, so – it sounds of- like uh, from another podcast you weren't too interested in college, which I can also relate to at that point in my uh, – at that point in my life too. Yeah, I totally agree, Matt. So I, I, I describe, so I grew up in London, in West London. And um, in, in the terms, it, it was kind of like, I think you kind of call them the projects over here in, in New York. Yeah. So I, I grew up in what they will call the projects in London. You know, they, they call them council estates over there. You know, they're sort of like, but I, you know, I had, it was great. I absolutely loved it. And because if you kind of think about what happens now in life, you know, you've got social media, you've got TVs, you've got satellite, you know, you've got all those distractions. Yeah. Back then we didn't have a TV, you know, we didn't have a television. There was no social media. And um, we literally, if we weren't at school, we'd go out and I'd describe it as quite feral. So we'd go out, run around, get into little adventures, you know, as you do, get into little street fights that happened then. Yeah. And we'd come home. And the reason we'd come home is because we were hungry. You know, and almost, set, you know, we didn't have watches and your mum to tell you you'd be home by five o'clock for dinner. But you think, oh, it's hungry, it must be time for dinner. So you'd go home and then there would be dinner, you know, that kind of thing. And I say it was extremely happy childhood, you know, but it, I can describe it as feral. And it gave me a sense of adventure because, you know, we did so many different things. We'd get on push bikes and cycle around London. You know, we'd, we'd get on a push bike and cross London to see, go and see my nan and, you know, my granddad. And then we'd cycle back. You know, and that's like 30 miles across across London, quite a busy place. Yeah. And then well, in the evening, we just cycle back, you know, because that's the kind of thing you did as a kid. We'd, there's, a, there's a big river that runs through London called the River Thames. You know, it's quite a big tidal river. And we'd go swimming in there, we'd, we'd swim across. You know, that kind of stuff is, is like a 10, 11 year old, you know, real kind of like, you know, do and dare kind of stuff as, as a kid. Didn't think nothing of it at the time. But you don't see kids nowadays doing that because their parents wouldn't let them do it. You know, it's just too, that's it, it's too too dangerous. But that childhood kind of like, I I kind of like got to sort of like what we call sixth form A-levels before you get what you call college. And I wasn't really interested. You know, I was like, well, this is boring. You know, this is really boring. So a friend of mine said, why don't you join the army? You know, it had always been a kind of little aspiration and um, I'm not sure if it's like it over here. You'd go to a recruiting office, yeah. and it was it was it was kind of like oh, right a recruiting office. You can just imagine I was spotty, skinny, little ragabond type kid, and the recruiter was he was great. He, I came in there and he said, "What do you want to do?" And I said, "I want to join the commandos," you know, because I kind of thought, saw that as a thing. And in the army, you only have two types of commandos: it's the Royal Artillery or the Royal Engineers, and that's support arms to um, three commander brigade. And, um, so, and it just so happened the recruiting sergeant had come from the artillery. So he, he talked me into joining the artillery. And that's the only reason I joined the artillery, because this recruiting sergeant uh, talked me into it. And um, sort of a year later, I was on the commando course. I remember being incredibly skinny when I walked into the recruiting station, too. I, we're about the same height, about 6'2". Yeah. Uh, I was probably 160 pounds. Uh, when I walked in at 18, gained about 10 pounds a year. And then at some point I thought, well, getting old now, when am I going to stop gaining 10 pounds a year? Yeah. And, uh, hey, I mean, you just like grow up. You're still growing up at that point. Yeah, for, yeah, for sure. And, um, and I think that's probably why I found basic training so hard. Yeah. And 
we've got a term in the British Army is beasting you, you know, so you go, you go, you do sort of like PT and you get thrashed to an inch of your life and, you know, you think you're going to die and then you'll go to something to eat, you sleep that night and, and you, you get thrashed the next day. And the only thing that really happens is you get really good at PT because you get thrashed each day and you get fitter, and, yeah. you know, as long as you don't get injured. And when, I'm, when you're 18, you're quite resilient, aren't you? You know, you, you kind of bounce back a lot. But by the time I finished basic training, and basic training for the artillery at the time was 12 weeks yeah. and three months. And I just, I just loved it at the end. I mean, to start with, it was horrific. You know, I was like, oh, how can I get out of this? <laughs> but the thought of going back to my parents, or my dad more importantly, and saying, oh, I couldn't hack it. Yeah. was just too much I was like no there's no way that's going to happen yeah there's no quit no exactly no quitting at all on that one mate. yeah I kind of tell young people who want to join or go into special operation or something just have integrity and don't quit you do those two things well things have a good chance of working out for you yeah, I mean, in in the British Special Forces, which is the same as yours, Matt, really, like, you know what I mean? Because dare I say that you stole it from us, you know, in that sort of sense. And, you know... Yeah, you, you can... There's you can look, a couple of books you can look in to figure out just how he did. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, yeah, I mean, resilience, I, not giving up, integrity, and uh, also one of the big things for us was humility, mm. you know. And I was, I was chatting to someone last night about um, SF selection, and it's the same for you guys, is when you finish that bond that you have with the guys on your course stays with you for life you know what I mean because yeah. you've gone through that, that, that sort of hardness and then when you join the unit that bond again is reinforced yeah. you know and it doesn't matter what happens whether you leave early or you know you get injured but that veteran community afterwards you know you, you always look inwards and look after each other like, you know and I don't think there's any other organisation out there that does it as well as the special forces yeah was that still around the time when uh, there was a lot of action in Northern Ireland? I don't, I'm not well studied up on the timeline. Yeah, so, I mean, Northern Ireland is a strange one, really, because it's a civil conflict in, yeah. within the United Kingdom, yeah. you know, and, you know, thankfully, it kind of calmed down and, you know, wise heads saw um, a solution to what was going on. But, yeah, it, it was the same, you know, people getting hurt, people just... It was just it, it was just a no it was a no ender, you know, because all that was happening is two sides that just didn't like each other. And, and to be honest, I don't think they really like each other now. Yeah. You know, but they realised that the future for their kids. You know, so, so if you imagine that the troubles in Northern Ireland went on for thirty years. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole generation. You know, it's a whole generation. And the adults got to a certain point where they went, I don't want this for my generation of kids. You know, they were like, you know my kids deserve better than this. I don't want them to go through all the suffering that we went through or, or that sort of thing. And they just went, how can we get rid of it? And they just sat down at a table and it, and it took, uh, you know, a senator from over here. It took the prime minister at the time, Tony Blair, and it took some wise heads in Northern Ireland. And they just went down and they just sat down and went, you're absolutely right, we need to stop this. And they come up with a Good, good Friday agreement to what it is today. Yeah. And, it, and it stopped it. And... I don't, even to this, even to today, I don't think people realised the importance of the uh, the Good Friday Agreement and um, how much happier Northern Ireland was because of it. You know, all of a sudden, you could talk to your neighbour, you know, with, across the divide without sort of like thinking that someone might do something to you. Yeah, for us, like domestic military involvement is 
tends to be like natural disaster based yeah. or humanitarian assistance, um, that kind of stuff. We, so the, the idea of, I mean, like after the civil war, the, the idea yeah. of military conflict within our own borders is pretty foreign to us. Yeah, and it should be as well, you know, I mean... It, I'm very happy for that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and in terms of, you know, the military involvement in Northern Ireland, they were there to support the police force, you know, to that's what they were there to do, you know, in, in that sort of form, because just the way it kind of morphed in that sort of sense. But now, most of the military involvement in the UK is exactly what you say, is natural relief. I mean, the big pandemic that's obviously just in the UK, with that just coming out of it, because... I read an article yesterday, there's 65% of the population now has been vaccinated, mm-hmm. you know, and they worked it out that they'll do the, the healthcare professionals first, and then they'll start the oldest people working downwards, and they're down to sort of like 35 year olds. So, you know, it's only sort of like that down to sort of like 18 year olds to go. Yeah. And, you know, the, the initial rollout of helping in COVID came from the military. You know, they were setting up um, screening sites. They helped with, you know, delivery of stores, and that, that's where the military come in because they're very, very good at organising things. And yeah. um, that's what they're best at doing, you know, when they're at home. You know, they don't want to be doing things like Northern Ireland and things like that, you know, because no one likes doing that sort of stuff. Right. You know, you know all that fighting they do now is, you know, is, is outside the borders, which is where it should be. Yeah, I, I've said it. I feel very fortunate to fight wars far away from, you know, where our families sleep. Yeah, and, and I think then... You, when they're done over there, you feel as if you're protecting your people at home, like, you know, stopping that mad madness sort of like morphing into the country where you live. Yeah. And um, that's, I mean, that's the best way for it to be done. You know, just trying to keep all that badness out of your country. Yeah. So you start off as a city kid. At what point in the military do does your adventure start to happen outside? Like in the wilderness or now on the ocean or all the other places, you know, you start adventuring in this urban you know, this urban jungle that you grew up in. Yeah. And now everything open, else opens up to you. And being in, uh, you know, a special forces unit really supercharges that. Yeah, so what the British Army does, why I don't think the American counterpart, I've not really heard of it, they do think called adventurous training. So when you're not doing military stuff, they, they encourage you to challenge yourself in an adventurous kind of way. So that could be climbing mountains, that could be diving under the sea, it could be sailing, it, it could be anything. You know, they, they encourage you to do it because they feel that you will develop as a soldier, yeah. you know, your navigation skills, your community, you know, your team spirits and all those sort of things. Yeah. So in that sense, I, um, I did loads of mountaineering. I, I climbed uh, McKinley in, in Alaska, all the all sort of like uh, Mount, McKen- Mount Kenya in uh, Africa. Um, some of the peaks in um, in the Himalayas, some of them in um, South America. You know, I, I go all over the place climbing. And also, um, I got a qualification called Yacht Master Ocean. It's a British qualification. It enables you to uh, skip a, um, boats up to 500 gross tons, which is, you know, a sizable yacht yeah. or, or powerboat. But more importantly, when I first started to start sailing, there was no GPS. So it was all using a sextant to navigate with, with dead reckoning. I, you go on a bearing for a certain distance and then you kind of mark it. So I thought this row that was coming up, because it's such an adventure, you know, a proper boy's own adventure. Yeah. I was going to take the GPS out of it because 
you know it's like when you get in your car you you put your zip code in or, or postcode or what we call it you set off and then when you get to the other side you don't really experience the journey you, you've just kind of like tuned out listened to music made a few phone calls and yeah. then you've arrived and you're like oh i'm here you have absolutely no idea what happened between the start and the finish point so uh for, so for this row and it goes back to the adventures you know in the military i've taken the gps out of it yeah. so i've got to experience the navigation you know going back to a map and compass you know when you when you first join the military it's that kind of navigation and obviously in the ocean there's no features to navigate on so those features become the sun and the stars yeah. and uh, i'll be mainly using the sun for celestial navigation because it's big and a little rowboat bounces around a lot and when the sun, i can see the sun i will get a fix and i'll um, plot it on uh, my chart and I'll probably be between one and two nautical miles accuracy just because the boat bounces around a bit. Yeah. But there might be a week, 10 days where I don't see the sun because it's cloudy, it's windy, it's raining. And then I'll just naturally just head east, the bearing that I think I should head on. And when the sun appears, I'll take a fix, check where I am, and then I'll adjust my course accordingly. Like. Yeah, it's wild. I, I'm still kind of astonished that at how, because I know a few, you know, other guys with similar backgrounds to you, but how much you guys actually get out every, ever, it seems like every time I look, I'm, I'm hearing about one of your guys that's climbing some mountain or that's been, you know, that's like run across some continent or that's been to the South pole and the North pole and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I think that's great. I think we do it as kind of like a byproduct of our job, whoever we're briefing it to we have to convince them to let us do it or let us spend some money and it has to tie to our proficiency yeah. so if i was going on a climbing trip i had better be on a climbing team that had that specialty or i was bringing other guys from a climbing team um or if i was on a boat I'd, i had better be you know with some people who who had a job that required some maritime skill otherwise we just call it a boondoggle <laughs> All right. But I think there's so much professional development involved there that, you know, I, I love the way you guys do it. Yeah. So, I mean, what it, I was chatting to someone last night who's he's now a colonel actually in, in um, yeah, 22 Special Air Service. And we were saying that, you know, when you do your SF selection, you, you could never guarantee who's going to pass. But per, percentage terms, almost every time it's between 12 and 14%. So if 200 people turn up, you know, between 24 and 28 people are going to pass out of 200. Mm. And uh, in the UK, that number's kind of shrunk a little bit just because the army's shrunk, you know, the, you know, the, the pool of people that you draw from. And no matter what they do, it's always the same number. And so they've kind of realized that you know psychologically mentally physically people tune into sf selection and they, and they pop out and they kind of be the same kind of people you know and you probably find it in um, over here in the sf world you're kind of the same person right but you've got your own character you know it's you know, you're very physically fit, you're mentally sharp, you've got the ability to sort of like simulate skills really quickly, and, you know, you can adapt to different environments very rapidly, you know, that kind of skill set. Right. But what it actually does, it gives you a sense of adventure outside. 
and and certainly in the UK, you know, as you were saying earlier, Matt, like you know, a lot of the guys when they get out, they still looking for adventure. Yeah. You know, ne- not necessarily with bombs and bullets. You know, for sure they you know they probably work in those environments, but they're like, ah, yeah, let's 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 trek to the South Pole. You know what I mean? You know, and uh, yeah, let, let's go and climb the highest mountain or. Yeah. In my case, let's let's see if I can find the hardest row at the moment, and and that's going from New York to the UK. Yeah, and it's kind of like inbred in us, you know. It just kind of like I think SF selection for us and for you guys, you know, you come to the top of the pile and you realise you're all the same. You know, you might look differently in you know physical stature and that, but mentally, you you know, you're always championing at the bit to become better. You know, and you're very good at. Uh, Assimilating information, putting it back out, and, and and taking it from there, and that's why I think you'll find that a lot of military people like myself, you know, even though you came into the military not particularly academically qualified, but when I left, I had a master's in um, you know you know in um, from university, so I went back to study. Yeah. You know, before I left, and a lot of the guys do. They go back to it later because they're like, "Oh, I didn't. I wasn't interested when I was young, you know." But I am now, so I'll go back and do an MBA or, or a master's, an MSc, or something along that that sort of lines because you're now interested in it. Yeah, and it kind of like drives that. I want to improve. I want to challenge myself. I want to go on an adventure. And lots of the the special forces guys here and back home are of the same week. Yeah. The same in the right uh, domains that make you good for the job. Yeah. And then one other thing I notice is everybody tends to have a special ability that you find out either earlier or later on. Like I know a guy who's like a concert pianist, but he looks like a caveman. <laughs> All right. Yeah. <laughs> he does. You know, and we're similar in 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 a very uh, set set of ways. Um, you know, but but vary to, uh, to make it enjoyable. You can still yeah. enjoy this, uh, you know, this personal diversity that comes with it too. Yeah, so, I mean, a very good friend I did selection with, uh, a guy called Pete Longbottom, you know, he said the beauty of selection is when you get to the end of it is you're all different. You know, you, you, like I came from the artillery, he came from parachute regiment, there was guys from the RAF regiment. You know, we all came from different units. And that just made... You were the same mold because you passed selection, but you brought all that experience to yeah. the party, that diversity. And, and I, I think that's why an SF, SF soldier, you know, that sort of like humility that you have to listen into the different kind of peer groups that you have in the different units yeah. make you so uh, adaptable to going forward. So with you guys, do you... So just with... Oh, by the way, I think you're the first uh, UK... Uh, guest we've had on. We've oh, had, I'm, I'm honoured. I'm honoured. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Matt, thanks. Thanks Thank for inviting me on that one. Right? Yeah. We, all, we wanted to make it a good one. Yeah. So we've, uh, <laughs> you've yeah, we've, we've, had a, we've had a Canadian and an Israeli guy, but uh, I think you're the first. Uh, so, you know, thank you for coming on. No, no. no I'm even more honoured now. Yeah. Uh, what was I going to say? Oh, for us... Your your retirement window, so getting into that transition you talked about, yeah. still feeling connected after. For us, it starts at twenty, goes to thirty. Right, twenty is the the earliest you can think about getting out. Well, 
with a pension, but you know, for people who go past like 12 or 13, they go 20. And then 30, they force you out, unless you're like a general. Yeah. So how, how long did you take it? And, and at the point where you were thinking, it's maybe time to hang up this uniform, what, what were the circumstances surrounding? Yeah, so I think it's pretty similar in the UK. So the, the pension mark in the UK is 22 years. Everyone says it's 22 years, you know. And I got to my 22-year point, and the unit, the, um, they said to me, it was right on that cusp of um, Gulf War Two. So I, when was I scheduled to get out? So I was scheduled to get out in 2006. Yeah. And, you know, it was a really busy period, you know, 2000. And one, you know, going up to 2006, you know, it was hugely, hugely busy. And the tempo of operations was like off the scale for all, everyone. Yeah. So they asked me to stay on for an extra five years, which I did, you know, quite happily to, happy to serve, like, you know, and do that extra five years. Mm. But when I got to the end of the five years, so I, I served 27 years in the military and uh, 21 of them with special forces. But I got to uh, 27 years, well, actually 26 years. And I realized I wanted to go and do something else. I kind of woke up one day and just went, yeah, it's time to go. Yeah. You, know, it's, you know, it's one of those things that I speak to a lot of veterans and they say, yeah, you're absolutely right, Ian. I woke up one day and just went, it's time to do something else. You know what I mean? Uh, there, there's definitely people out there that have been, you know, literally pushed out the door because they got to their 30-year point. Like, you know what I mean? They don't want to go, they don't want to go. But yeah. you know, most people just realize one day that it's time to go and do something else. And at the 27-year point, for me, which was 2011, I just, you know, I, I was I, I was happy to go, you know, I didn't renew the contract and just kind of like drifted out the door or such. And, and I look back on my military career, you know, 27 years is a long time and it's a blur, Matt. You know, I, I you know, from joining to sort of like, you know, Carnegie's doing SF selection, operation after operation, you know, then, you know, I think it was one of the other reasons it was a real blur was, you know, 9-11, you know, I mean, I remember sitting in, um, a, you know, I joke about it now, but I mean, I was, I was sat in a trench, but the uh, the guy from 101st sat next to me told me it was a foxhole. You know, so we had this kind of like banter all night in a place called Coast or Coust. You know, he called it Host, I called it Coust. You know, and we kind of like joked that, you know, the Americans are just butchering the English language. You know, they come up with their own words. So there was like little pot shots coming over, little mortar rounds, and it, and it was right at the very beginning. Yeah. And, you know, the guy, you know, he was a Lance Corporal in the 101st, and I think he was about 18 or 19. He was a really young guy. And he said, like, you know, we're going to be busy for the next 10 years. You know, this was like early, early 2002. And he was absolutely right. You know, the tempo from that moment onwards was just off the scale. Yeah. And uh, 10 years later, literally 10 years later, it was when I left. It's wild that you had already been in 17 years at 9-11 and then you you know cite that as like 10 years left after that and the whole thing were you in uh, Gulf 1 too? No so uh, Gulf 1 I would have been in it but that's when I did SF, SF selection oh, so you, you missed like the four day long war yeah yeah exactly yeah, and all the build up to it and all, all that kind of stuff but uh, you know I, I finished selection and yeah. joined B squadron and um, that they had the fateful Bravo 2-0 patrol yeah and um, I was the only one off my selection to go to B Squadron. And um, yeah, it, 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 was, uh, it was interesting times. Like, you know, it, you know, it was a little bit like when I joined 2-9 Commando. They'd just come back from the Falklands War, you know, like a year on from the Falklands War. So it's just full of veterans. Yeah. 
that have you know been in combat, and, and at the time there wasn't really that much combat going around. So um, when uh, Gulf War One happens, there wasn't much going on in the world. You know that that was quite a big thing. So yeah. th- there was a lot of action there. But I, yeah, I did Gulf War Two. You know, and then in off, before Gulf War Two, we was in Afghanistan, those sort of places. Yeah. You stay close to, or do you still live in Hereford? Yeah, so the, the, the home of the Special Forces is Hereford. And, um, you know, as I said, I went there in 91 uh, with my wife. You know, I, I, I passed selection and then at four, three months later, I got married. Mm. And I went in to see the Sergeant Major and said, look, is it all right to get married? Because in the British Army, you're meant to ask permission. You know, it's kind of one of those. If the old, Army wanted you to have a wife, they'd issue you one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So I, I said to him, he said, oh, we're meant to be on exercise then, Ian. You know, we're going to be away. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to have to cancel the wedding or something like that. And he went, no, I'll tell you what. And he called he called a senior guy in, you know, in, in the troop. You know, lot, you know, I just passed election. You know, I was really, you know, wide-eyed and staring at everyone. And this senior said, yeah, I'll take your place here, you know, I'll, I'll go and exercise, I'll, I'll fill that patrol for you so you can go and get married. Awesome. And, and it was kind of like, yeah, this is a really good place to be, you know, they're like, that. yeah, you go and get married, son, you know what I mean, we'll, we'll, co- we'll cover your bases for you. And I went and got married, you know, in, um, in, the, in, in the UK. And, and it, it was that kind of thing. And, but the reason I'm still in Hereford now was because the kids were born in Hereford. They yeah. grew up in Hereford. They went to school in Hereford, but they went to university outside of Hereford. And it's a nice place to live. You know, it's a nice place. And, and it's full of your old mates. Yeah. You know, I, I could move around somewhere in the UK, but I wouldn't really know anyone. And most people like to just hook into the veteran communities. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not. So you, you go. So people I did selection with, I see on a regular basis. We go for a cup of tea or a coffee. We go for a beer, a meal, pizza. We're whining at each other about the world's affairs, you know, that type of thing. And, you know, as you do, it could be better. And it's kind of nice doing that. And it makes you kind of relaxed. And you also keep an eye on each other mentally as well, you know, the old mental resilience type thing. A lot of the old veterans have a few wobbles. Not so much the SF guys, but they do have wobbles. And and you just keep an eye on each other, Matt, you know, in that sense. Yeah. When you talked about, uh, you know, when your time was up, you kind of drifted away. What was your first, like professionally or personally, the first step that you took outside the military? Yes, yeah, so the British military is quite good. Um, you get kind of like a two-year transition where you can go and do what they call pre-release courses, you know, resettlement-type courses. And, um, you know, this is kind of the irony of it. Like, so you can do whatever you want. You know, you can go to a plumber's course, you can become an electrician, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and I was like, hey, I didn't want to do any of that. So one of my best mates rang me up and said, Ian, I've just bought this really shitty boat in Virginia, North Virginia, you know, literally down the road there. And he said, I'm sailing it back in September. Do you want to come and sail it back? So I used my resettlement time to sail the boat back from America with him. Right. And um, we were going to do it in September and time drifted just because we were busy. And I arrived in um, Norfolk to sail this boat back in October, which is winter. And we sailed this 29 foot boat back from um, the Americas back to the UK in winter. And we got absolutely smashed, absolutely smashed. And originally it was meant to be a six week trip, but it turned into a 12 week trip just because the winds were in the wrong direction. And I got back 
and they were like that, you know, where you been? You know, oh, it just took a little bit longer, you know, because the old, the old wind was in the wrong direction. And because we had no communications, we just, yeah. we just kind of set sail. It was a right kind of, and it kind of marked the end of my military career with an adventure, yeah. you know, which was a sailing adventure. And then three months later, I was a civilian, you know, I sort of like walked out, handed my ID card in and, and started another adventure. Yeah. Yet another quick adventure, I think, which uh, was publicized maybe a little bit, but uh, this, the Syria thing. Yeah, so when I, when I left the, the military, Matt, you know, so I, as I said before, I did 27 years in the military. Yeah. And um, I didn't really want to go into another organization, you know, a big machine organization. So I treated the first two years as a gap year. You know, actually it was going to be a first year. So you know when you finish university, you don't know what you can do, so you, you just do anything. You yeah. travel the world or whatever. Yeah. So I decided I was going to do that. I, you know, I had enough money to sort of port the family in the background type thing. So I said, right, I'll take any job that comes my direction. I don't matter where it is, I'll, I'll just go and do it. And the first job I did was in Libya, in, in North Africa. And it was when Gaddafi was uh, the fall of you know, the regime of Gaddafi. Yeah. And then that, that sprungboard me into uh, Syria about six months later. <laughs> and um, unfortunately, I was working with a team and uh, we all got kidnapped, you know, and... In SF terms, the kind of planning that you put in place actually saved their lives. So I put a, I call it the oops plan because in civilian terms, they, they don't like contingency plans. They, they don't like those kind of terminologies. So I called it the oops plan. <laughs> you know, oops, something happened sort of thing, you know, just to kind of, kind of like wrapped into it. And it yeah. kind of like gave all the actions on if, if you know, like miscon scared, you know, yeah. the usual kind of military stuff. Yeah. And then if you don't hear from us for 24 hours, it means that we've been taken, you know, we, you know, we, we're missing, you know, you need to do these things here. Well, I took a tracker with us. Uh, it was an Iridium tracker, you know, a satellite tracker. And, um, you know, it, it was kind of brutal, you know, you got beaten and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, I was like, you know, usual sort of stuff. And the sequencing of being kidnapped, bound, gagged, blindfolded, beaten a bit more, mock executions, you know, all the kind of things they put you through. Yeah. You can't, I was like, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. But they were like really kind of brutal, you know. So when you got a kick in, you got a proper kick in, you know, yeah. in that sort of sense. But um, the, the the funny part of the whole thing was, you know, and there were some real humorous things in it, Matt. So in military terms, you have, you have terror on one side in, in psychology, but the other side of psychology, terror, is humor. And so to get out of terror, in, we call it black humor in the military. You'll crack a joke. Oh, yeah. And it'll bring the terror out of the terror into the sort of like humorous side. <clears throat> and um, so we'd literally just been mock executed. We had to do a proof of life video with the blindfold off and, you know, my name is Ian Rivers and, you know, that kind of stuff. And then the guy came in and he was like, we got this telephone, we can't turn it off. And it was the beacon. It's a little light flashing on it like that. And I was like, well, what you need to do is there's a little red catch on the back. You flick that off and then there's a button. It's the off button. And you press that for about three seconds and it should turn it off. But what it actually did <laughs> was set it off. You know, and, I, and I'll, I'll be honest, I shit myself. I'm like, if they realize what I've just done, like, you know what I mean? But that action there sent the beacon into full power mode and put two red dots on the map back in the ops room, back in the UK. 
And that was the start point to come and look for us. You know, because if they hadn't had that start point, they wouldn't know where to come. And you'd have just disappeared, you know what I mean? Yeah. In that sort of sense. But the, the funny part was we, we got moved from that place. You know, they, when it got dark, they moved us again. And it was, again, they were really rough. You know, they weren't particularly nice. And we, we came to the first, or the first house that they kept us in. You know, the, the, the first place they took the video was more of a, like a farm. <clears throat> and climbed our three steps, three flights of steps. We were all blindfolded, one hand on each other, each other's shoulder. And I was the last one to come in the room. And they took the blindfold off us. And it was the first time, apart from the video, that we actually took the blindfold off. <clears throat> and I remember flapping my eyes. And there was, there was a few of us. And with the, they were saying, like, you lie there, you lie there, you lie there, and you get in that bed. <clears throat> and I was the last one to be put in this bed. And um, the guy in the bed, so there's two of us in each bed, and, and the guy in there was uh, Amir, who was our fixer. He was a German-Syrian. And he was really upset. He was a young lad, you know, he's 25, he's petrified. You could just tell by the look in his face. Yeah. And I took one step forward, and I went, no. And everyone's looking at me like, no, I'm not getting in that bed. And... The guard was going for his pistol, you know, you could see the anger in his face. And, and I pointed to the end of the bed. And he's like, I went, look, like that. I can't get in there. He was like, huh, get? And I was like, it was a Real Madrid football sticker. Right? <laughs> and I went, I was like, Real Madrid? And he's like, what? I said, I'm a Chelsea supporter. I can't get in a Real Madrid bed. And the guard just cracked up laughing. He, you know, it, oh, it, the humour was in there straight away. And I just went, of course I'll get in the bed. You know what I mean? And, and I went and got in the bed. And the, the guard ran out, came back in with a real Madrid pair of socks. You know, and, and I was like, ah. he offered me them. I said, of course I'll take them because my feet were cold. Like, you yeah. know what I mean? Because we had no shoes. They're, they're taking their shoes off. Them, like, Holy you know? shit. But it was that humour, you know, the, the sort of like, you know, I didn't think about it at all. It's just that... that black humour, you know, dark humour that military people have. Yeah. And it just cracked it, you know, and all of a sudden we, we laughed for about half an hour before the terror came back, like, you know, but um, there's a bit of British humour for you. <laughs> it's incredible. How did you keep uh, a straight face during the phone beacon thing? The what, sorry, Matt? When you're having them turn the phone beacon on, how, oh, how do you keep a straight face? Oh, that, I mean, luckily I was blindfolded, mm. you know, and he, and he, he said, we got this thing, and uh, Amir was translating the uh, the, the, tr the translator. And uh, I said... Oh, so you're going through him, yeah. and he's got to keep this ruse up with you. Yeah, yeah. So I said to him, look, you know, bring the catch back, press and hold for, uh, you know, three seconds, and he's translating to them, like, you know. Hmm. And I'm thinking, you know, if this goes off, as in, like, they realize what, you know, what it is. But luckily, the beacon... It's not intuitive to turn it on and off, you know, because it's a touchscreen type thing, and yeah. you know it's written in English, and they obviously only speak the Arab Arabic, and uh, it's the Arabic script, which is completely different, sort of like you know, letters as such. Right. So that kind of, you know, that I didn't know it had gone off. You know, it, it was a, like an educated guess, but it obviously did. Wow. And, and without a doubt, that was a single thing that saved us for sure. There's this, uh, you know, the story from like Black Hawk Down where uh, Mike Durant asked them if they could wash his T-shirt because he thought that they would hang it outside and that some someone doing, you know, yeah. like a helicopter patrol would see a brown army T-shirt on a clothesline. Yeah. Um, it's crazy the kind of things that you have to come up with in those scenarios because I'm sure, you know, you went through survival evasion training 
same as our special forces, all that kind of stuff. Like, I think it's on all of our minds. What if this ever happened? But, you know, rarely do you get to talk to someone who it actually happened to. Yeah. So, I mean, in kidnapping terms, so on the sort of sixth day, they were moving us. And because the beacon went off, they knew where to start looking for us. So, they, you know, another um, Islamist group was looking for us a group called Arasham, you know, and if, if you kind of Google Arasham now, they're, they're kind of like lefty-leaning, Islamisty kind of group. Mm. But they were actually out there looking for us because at the time they wanted the West to help them out. You know, it was, it was early on. It was, you know, it was 2000, late 2012, early 2013. And Obama was in power and he, and he was talking about his red lines and they were trying to get the West, like they did in Libya, to help out. Mm. So they didn't want to see Westerners come to this thing, but... The, the rogue elements of the Free Syrian Army that had taken us. And so on, on the last move, we were, it was pitch black. And I, in timelines, I describe it to people, it was just before Christmas in the UK, so in Syria. It was seven days before Christmas Day, this particular day. And they were moving us at night. It was really cold, it was raining, it was almost snowing, you know, and because it's a war zone, there was no lights. So the ambient light, you couldn't see much. So there's no light. And your hand in front of you, you could only just see the distance that we are now, at, you know, sort of like a metre away from each other. And we're driving along the road. Then all of a sudden, the, you know, we were still blindfolded and shackled in the back of the vehicle. The driver shouted, Hodges, 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 which is checkpoint, checkpoint, checkpoint sort of thing. Screeched to a halt and we all kind of like banged in the back of the vehicle. And then the driver and the, the guard debussed and started firing. You know, there was a, there was a gunfight going on. And um, it was with the other grouping. They had found where we were and they were ambushing our group. Mm. And uh, in, in a firefight, I, I sort of like, as, as you know, you know, you don't want to be in a vehicle when there's a firefight going on. So I, I got out of the vehicle. I was trying to open the side door to get the rest of the guys out. I came back in through the front door to drag them out. And then I was, I was taking fire a little bit. So I went around the back of the vehicle and around the back of the vehicle is a tail light, as you, as you imagine. So I, I'm now behind the tail light, which in the UK is a rear light, okay? But I'll, I'll allow you the tail light. I think we, yeah. You know, you've got, you got a message. So, so I'm silhouetted behind the light, and I could hear voices behind me. So I took a dive to my left, which, which I tumbled into the, off the road, down a bush, and down an embankment. And sort of like dashed down, crawl and observe, you know, the old military term. And then I was like, right, I'll get back on the road, see what's going on. And I crawled back onto the road, and we're, we're talking minutes now, you know, like two or three minutes. And the vehicles that are in, and the, the checkpoint vehicle were driving off. And all I could see was two taillights disappearing into the darkness. And I was in the middle of Syria now, on my own. They, they'd gone without me. You know, I, I, I thought they'd been taken by the regime, you know, the, uh, the regime at the time. Mm. And I could hear voices behind me, and... Um, so the next adventure began. I was now not kidnapped anymore. I was on my own, but I had to escape and evade being captured again. And um, it took me three days to get to the Turkish border without getting captured Yeah, on my own. I heard that you, uh, you were tracking days by the call to prayer. Yeah, so... I mean, you, like, you said they were rough and, you know, when you go through like training, you get your blindfold taken off, you get it kind of like, you know, it's not, they're not bashing you the whole time, but it sounds like you were blindfolded like the whole time. Yeah, so blindfolded exactly the whole time. And um, occasionally you try and peek, you know, as you do, you know, in, in those kind of things. And uh, the guard will just thump you. 
And so you were shackled, so your hands were shackled every time, you're blindfolded the whole time. And so you had no concept of day and night. And the only way that we kind of got the concept was a call of prayer. So the first light call of prayer, you know, the six o'clock in the morning, there would be midday call of prayer, then there'd be last light, then there'd be a huge gap yeah. until the next, you know, and that gave you the night space. So two six-hour gaps and a 12-hour gap. Yeah, and, and that gave you your time clock, yeah. you know, so you're like, that, right, it's daytime now. Yeah. You know, oh, it's, di- it's, it's nighttime now. And so when I went on a run, you know, it, it, it was probably about eight o'clock at night that the ambush happened on us. And... I maneuvered through the night and what I didn't have was I didn't know which way north was. So I knew where we were taken from, where the actual kidnapping happened. And I knew we never went far from there. So every time they moved us, it was no more than five and 10 minutes in a vehicle, Mm. quite slowly. So we was always in the same area, that kind of thing. Oh yeah, we haven't made any turns yet. We were still in the same place. And so when I actually got out of the vehicle, I knew that I needed to go north. And in that area, there's lots of olive trees. It's very rural in the sense that, you know, a few conurbations, you know, cities, sort of a place called Idlib is a city. But the trees, because they're so old, they grow towards the sun. They, they're leaning, they lean towards the sun. So I, I put the trees behind me, leaning towards the sun, and I must it meant north must be this direction. So I used that as my compass for the night. And the, the daytime the next day, I sort of set about working out how can I work out that I'd gone north that, that all night. And I laid up during the day in a big pile of rocks. And I thought, if I lay in a pile of rocks, no one's going to come up there because the weather was horrible. It was proper, proper wet and cold. And I was laying in a pile of rocks and I thought, what side of the rocks does moss grow on? You know, I mean, like that. So I looked around. It obviously grows on the north side because the sun burns it off, you know, in, in, yeah. in the summer. Yeah. So I sat up in my pile of rocks and there it was, moss was on one side and it wasn't on the other. And that confirmed that I'd been going north all night and reinforced the, the way I was gonna go for the next two days. Yeah, I read this old book called like Finding Your Way Without Map and Compass. And uh, it has all these cool little nature things in there. Had you, had you remembered that from somewhere or did you work it out on the spot? And you're probably like, starving dehydrated and you know mentally just dealing with a ton of shit yeah so there was definitely a ton of shit going on for sure like you know there was firefights going on like tank rounds disco rounds and all that sort of stuff but yeah I, th- I think it was basically through when I did the commander course we, we kind of covered that navigation yeah. when you did selection you covered that kind of navigation as well and when you did your uh, combat survival we you know you escape and evasion type training they talk about natural indicators for direction. And because navigation was my thing, you know, I, I liked like pure navigation. Mm. I kind of tuned into that quite a lot and it paid dividends. So, you know, literally when I went on a run, I've got to say it's big hand navigation. You know, it's not, you know, you, it's north. It's not, yeah. it's not a little bit left and right of it. You know, you're just heading in that direction. Yeah. But yeah, it works, you know, and, and I say, you know, the confidence it gave me you know, having done what I'd done, you know, my previous sort of like background and, you know, the pile of rocks, you know, I joke about it now with people, but, you know, what side of the rocks the moss grow on, you know, and it's 80% on the north, isn't it? You know, there's someone on the southern side for sure, yeah. but the predominantly is on, on that one side and it, it got me out of trouble, you know, you know, without a doubt it saved my life for sure. Yeah, it's incredible. How was, uh, 
how are like your family, friends, and and guys back at the unit? Did they know while this was going on? Because you were almost a week in captivity, and then another three days to evade. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's quite funny. I mean, it's a humorous thing here. So after about three days, the family got the phone call. Look, we think Ian's been kidnapped. You know, and yeah. you know, you know, quite traumatic for my wife and the kids. You know, although they were young adults, you know, they were at university at the time. So they kind of like formed a little bond. And uh, one of my best mates, who was still serving in the uh, in the special forces, he became the liaison officer. You know, he'd come around have coffee. He'd link back into the unit. Yeah, we're trying to track him down. You know, the usual kind of telephone type stuff. You know, that sort of thing. And um, so obviously I didn't know any of that at all. And I almost got to the border and I had the opportunity to use a telephone. You know, I I found a friendly telephone. And it it goes back to this humor. How many people can remember a telephone number, you know? So if I said to you, mate, what's your girlfriend's telephone number? You're like, ah, hang on a minute, I'll look it up on my phone because I just pressed ring, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I I sat there and I was like, what numbers can I remember? I couldn't, you know, I, I certainly couldn't remember my wife's mobile number or anything like that because they just press, you know, Linda, wife sort of thing. Couldn't remember the kids' mobile numbers because it's like Henry and Georgia. So I was like, and there's two numbers I can remember. One of them is the camp number, which is ingrained in your head, which is probably ingrained in your head for yours. Yeah. And my home telephone number, you know, the landline number. And I thought to myself, there's no way I'm going to ring the camp up because they just take the piss. You know what I mean? They'll be like, you, you know, you idiot, like, you know, that kind of thing. So it was probably four or five o'clock in Sirius in the morning. So I, I rang the home telephone. Your you parents? Know. No, my, my wife's. Oh, your, my, your yeah, home? Yeah, my home number, oh. like, yeah, yeah. And you'd think because I was missing, right, the wife would have taken the phone to bed, wouldn't you? You know, you know it's not much to ask, is it? Like, you know what I mean? You thought she'd have taken it to bed. So it's ringing, and it, it rang a couple of times, and I'm like, yeah, she's going to answer it in a minute. You know, I know it's early in the morning back home and all that sort of stuff. And it went to voicemail, and um, it was like, oh, hello, you got through to Ian and Linda. Please leave a message after the tone. Holy shit. And I, I just got sort of, hi, it's me. I'm alive. I'm okay. I'm in a safe house. I'm hopefully going to make the border. And then the line cut dead, like, you know. And uh, that was the message she got in the morning. Like, you know, she kicked herself for not taking the phone to bed. Like, you oh, know. my God. You know, but yeah. And then at least they knew I was alive because, you know, up to that point, they, they, they didn't know, you know, in that sort of sense. What'd she tell you afterwards? I probably can't repeat it on here, like, you know what I mean? <laughs> but, you know, she, yeah, she, yeah, it was, she was like, you know, you know, you know. I was like, yeah, it was a bit of a pickle, you know, it was okay, we knew we were going to get out, you know, you, you've kind of play it down yeah. because you don't want to stress them too much about it. But she kind of asked me quite politely not to do it again. Yeah. Were you there? So I think I skipped over this, but you were there with a news crew? Yeah, so basically I, I was with the NBC news crew, like, you right. know, and um, I'd never worked with them before, you know, it's the first time we worked with each other. And you were like their just guide, you know, world worldly person to make sure they don't, do stupid stuff in a yes, country? Yeah, so basically, I mean, we were working with the NBC guys and uh, we were all set up, you know, it, you know, it, it was, a, they were after a news crew and it just happened to be us in the area. But um, mm. it was the oops plan, the safety plan that was put in place yeah. would actually save their lives because a week before then, um, uh, 
a guy called John, John Cantley and uh, Foley, an American journalist, were, were kidnapped literally two or three miles from where we were taken. Yeah. And they disappeared. They disappeared for like two years. Just disappeared before they kind of surfaced. Jesus. And, uh, you know, if it hadn't been for the Oops plan, you know, I, I say it kind of jokingly, you know, that, that, that kind of um, that professional was put in place, you know, we, we might have sort of had the same fate as um, John Cantley and Foley. Yeah. But because the old beacon went off, there was a, a plan in place for coming to find us. You know, everyone, everyone got home for Christmas. But uh, I mean, uh, James Foley, like, you know, unfortunately he was killed by um, Islamic State. John Canley, he was, he's missing, presumed dead, you know, as a lot of hostages that were taken, you know, at around the same sort of time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, you know, we, we should consider ourselves really lucky, but in those sort of cases, you make your own luck, you know, by the, uh, the emergency plans you put in place. Yeah. The kind of guys we asked to come looking for us, you know, so um, we had the beacon in place, but more importantly, there was, there was a guy called YL, I won't give you a second name because it might put me in danger over there. So he was a local, you know, in terms of, you know, the kind of fixer kind of guys that you work with. And it was him that he got one of the pings, the text messages from the beacon. And he, because um, at some point he got shot twice when we was working in Aleppo. And um, I patched him up, you know, I sort of like, sort of like stopped him bleeding out and then sort of casivacked him to Turkey and, and he lived. Mm. And it, came, it kind of gave us a sort of like blood bond with each other, as, as you can imagine that sort of thing does. And when he, when he knew I was in trouble, he was like, he moved heaven and earth to come and track us down. And he knew where, that, where the beacon location was. And it was him that was directing the forces to, uh, on the ambush to get us. Wow. And, um, but it, yeah, but unfortunately for um, you know, John Cantley and uh, James, they didn't have that in place. So they, they literally disappeared for two years. So, who who actually was the uh, the ambushing party, and what happened to the other guys that you were captured with? Yeah, so the ambushing party was uh, Arasham, you know, the guys I mentioned earlier, and they came up to the vehicle, you know, sh- shot at the bad guys that had kidnapped us, found the uh, the NBC crew in the car. You know, I'd tumbled down down the thing as as I said earlier. Yeah, they said, right, we got to go now. And they were like, yeah, Ian's not here. And they said, no, no, we've got to go now, you know, because it was dangerous. And they just drove off mm. and uh, literally drove them to the border. And uh, luckily, you know, they, uh, they, got, they got released. They got, you know, I, I kind of joke with them, like, you know, you got a lift to the border. I had to walk, <laughs> you know, in that sort of, But they got there um, the next morning. So literally they looked after them that night, dropped them off the next morning at the border. Yeah. And then three days later, I caught up with them. Were you at that point, like, you have this decision where, okay, maybe the guys who just ambushed us are good guys and we, I want to be part of their crew, but I'm free right now and I want to remain free. So let me have a go alone. Yeah. So, I mean, I literally said earlier, man, you know, I got back on top of the road and I was like, you know, what's going on? It was just happened that fast. Yeah. It's gone. Yeah. They were gone. I mean, literally by the time I sort of like got back on the road, the, the, the tail lights were disappearing in the distance and, oh, sure. uh, I was like, and I can hear voices in the darkness behind me, which is obviously the guys that, you know, that were left behind. Yeah. And I was like, and they weren't the guys that I was kidnapped with. Like, you know, they were, they were, you know, it was Arab voices I could hear behind me. Yeah. So as I said, I thought they would take, I thought initially I thought it was a regime checkpoint. 
mm. you know, for sure, you know, and they've been taken by the government forces, which possibly good, possibly bad, I don't know, like at the time, but they were taken by Arasham, which um, basically were looking for us because, you know, as I said, they, they wanted to sort of like appease the West at the time and, you know, get, get help. And uh, they, they, they took the crew to um, a safe house that night because it's not particularly safe to travel at night in, in Syria. And then at first light in the morning, uh, they, they drove them to the border, you know, uh, and that was their ordeal over. Mm. But I had, I had another couple of days to go before I got myself there. Yeah. Hey everyone, I want to spend this intermission talking about how to track Ian's adventure uh, and more importantly, how to support the organizations he's rowing for. You can find Ian on his website at rowsentinel.com. That's R-O-W-S-E-N-T-I-N-E-L.com, rowsentinel.com. His website's pretty fun. There's a couple videos, you know, introducing you to Ian. I think the coolest thing about his website is that there is a GPS tracker which we'll talk about in the episode, but you can pull this thing up uh, and see where in the world Ian is at any point. So uh, he has a uh, he has a GPS that he cannot use, but that his emergency people can use, and they'll be posting his location on the website. And I go check it every couple days uh, to see just how long three thousand miles is and uh, and where Ian is right now. You can also follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Row Sentinel. Uh, If you go to his website, he has uh, some more information about the two charities he's supporting, which we will discuss uh, toward the end of this episode. So when we do discuss them in this episode, please stay tuned and pay attention because, you know, they're very uh, near and dear to his heart and uh, and the great organizations. Uh, The first would be the Special Air Service Regimental Association, which, of course, is very uh, close to Ian. And the second is St. Michael's Hospice in, uh, in, in Ian's town of Hereford, UK. Uh, so please listen there. If you go back to his website, there is, a, uh, there is a donation button at the top right. If you are so compelled and, uh, you know, you're inspired by Ian's uh, great feat that uh, go to his website at rosentinel.com. Click the Donate Now button at the top right uh, and, and, you know, give to these uh, wonderful charities that he's supporting. Uh, as far as us, everything you can find, uh, everything is on our website at thankyounowwhat.com. If you're a regular listener, uh, you know, I can go into more of that on another episode. But for now, I'll leave you with uh, rosentinel.com. Please check out more about Ian there. Uh, stay engaged, track his progress, and please consider uh, helping him support uh, a couple great organizations. Thanks, and let's get back to the episode. All right, so your first <laughs> first job out of the uh, military is quite a story to tell. How does this now change what you're after professionally? Yeah, so I, I think that probably marked the end of my gap year. You know, so, yeah. so I mean, I was, you know, I was like, yeah, I think a gap yeah, was Some over. people go backpacking <laughs> through Europe. Yeah. yeah. Some people go to Syria. Yeah. yeah. So after that, um, I formed a company with some friends, Art Risk Management, and... Um, we all realise that if you're going to do that kind of work, you know, you need a really strong background and professionalism in it. And uh, so we, we basically formed a country, a company that took other journalist areas like that, but mm. with a bit more experience. 
did training, did investigations. Uh, and we went to um, Ukraine a couple of times, did bomb damage assessments of oil refineries. You know, it, it was kind of very entrepreneurial, but in the kind of areas that you'd think someone like we would do once we left. Yeah. You know, we run sort of like close protection jobs for high net worth individuals. We um, sold equipment to various organizations, that type of thing. Very entrepreneurial, but um, unfortunately the COVID pandemic when it started, pretty much closed down organizations like ourselves, the company, because no one wanted to travel anymore. No one wanted to go to uh, challenging environments. Companies pretty much took in-house. So a lot of the consultants they would use, which would be us as, as a small company, that they, they brought those services in-house and used their own people to do it. Mm. So we, the three directors, we mothballed the company for a little bit. We said, look, let's close the company down because it's costing money and let's go and do some adventures ourselves. And the row is, is my adventure. So we, we, yeah. we, close a, we close the company down now probably or sort of like mothballed it for a, a period of time. Possibly sort of like January last year. And um, then we sort of like said, right, let's, let's go and do some adventures. And uh, mine is, is the row from New York back to the Isle of Sillies. <laughs> All right. So now we're getting into the meat of the current event. Yeah. So <clears throat> was it 3,000 something miles? Yeah. So I sometimes sort of like come out of a figure with people and they can't quite comprehend it. So yeah. it's, it's 3,100 nautical miles, mm. right? And in land miles, that's 3,300 land miles, you know, yeah. so we kind of put it in that context. When you're banging around the map, yeah, so probably a little bit more. So yeah. I, I say to people, it, it's going to take three months. Yeah. So most people can say, wow, three months. You know what I mean? And they got a concept of that. Yeah. So between a little bit less than three months, if I'm lucky, a little bit more than three months, if I'm unlucky. Yeah. What's it like just being alone for three months? Well, there's a challenge, Matt, because I've never done that. Yeah. So um, people say, you know, what, what, I've got a definition of an adventure, you know, and... Someone's adventure might be doing an Ironman, you know, triathlon, you know, it might be just going, you know, trying to get to do a half marathon or something like that. But for me, an adventure has always been something. Once you start it, you don't know the outcome until it actually happens. And what I mean by that, the adventure is such a normality in front of you. There are so many possibilities of what's actually going to happen that you don't really know the end until it actually happens. And, you know, whether it's climbing big mountains, rowing big oceans. So I'll set off from New York probably Thursday or Friday next week. And when I set off, I'll break it down into very small chunks. And um, a very good friend of mine once said, if your challenge is so big it, big, it looks like an elephant, there's no way you can eat an elephant in a wanna. So you just got to do bite-sized trunks, chunks. So the first chunk is its tail. So I'm going to eat the elephant's tail, and that's departing New York. And then each day I'll just take another little chunk until I get to the other side. Yeah. But um, I'll leave next week. And th the first thing I'm looking forward to is New York disappearing into the skyline. So as I go over the horizon, New York will just dim. And then I'm just surrounded by water. Yeah. And, and that's the first thing I'm looking forward to. Is that going to be on the first day? I reckon it'll be on the first day, but certainly by the second day for sure. Yeah. It's wild. Can we talk about the boat a little bit? Yes. Yeah, so because when I think about <laughs> rowing a boat, it's not a boat that I can think about spending three months in. Yeah. 
So the rowboat is a, is a purpose-built ocean rowboat, so it's designed to cross oceans. Now what I mean by that, so it's 27 feet long, it's quite narrow, so I can row it through the water easily. If it goes upside down, it will self-right itself, so if a wave capsizes it so it goes on its roof, mm. it'll roll straight back over, back onto sort of like the bottom of the boat. It will go between one and two knots, which is like two miles an hour. Yeah. So I'll average two miles an hour a day, maybe more if there's a wind or a current. So I'll be doing between 25 and 30 miles, maybe 35 miles a day in the rowboat. <clears throat> I'll, it's got two cabins on it. It's got a cabin at the front and it's got a cabin at the rear. Uh, and they're small cabins. And they're basically the pivot points for when it goes upside down for it to roll back onto its, its, uh, its base as such. And the front cabin is seven foot long. So me being six foot two, I can sleep in that one quite easily. Yeah. And the rear cabin's only five foot long. And that's where the um, electronics are, the battery chargers and the, and the batteries are, and, and the, uh, the water maker. So that's, that's like the, the command center, if you want to call it that. Yeah. And the front cabin is, um, is where I'm going to sleep and probably cook as well. Make some tea? Of course, of course. <laughs> you know, I've got lots of tea making yeah. facilities on the boat. For real though, you're going to make tea? Yeah, so I've, I've actually got instant tea. Oh, okay. You know, which is kind of not, not very British at all. Like, right, you know, yeah. Very American, but it's okay. I'm sure people understand. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Can you talk about the route? Because I'm sure for people listening, they're just like, holy shit, I've never thought about rowing across the Atlantic. But there are a few different routes, and then there's the point of going solo versus, you know, having a buddy. Yeah. So in terms of the route, again, the Americans butcher in the English language, the routes. So okay. the routes, yeah. okay, I'll, I'll talk about the routes. And I'm sure it's the same thing as the routes. But, um, I'll, Similar, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll be leaving New York. And it, the diff, most difficult part for me is, is actually getting offshore. Because the weather in New York is quite fickle. And what I mean by that, the wind comes from all directions very quickly. The weather changes very, very quickly. Yeah. And, and I need three days of favorable weather conditions, i.e. westerly winds blowing from New York out to the sea to put, enable me to get offshore the quickest. <clears throat> because when I sleep at night, the boat drifts. Mm -hmm. And if the wind's blowing back towards New York, my boat's gonna go back to New York, you know, and, and there's things to bump into. But I will leave New York on a southeasterly direction. And then once I get into deep water and just off, off New York, it's probably about 150 foot deep. After 100 nautical miles, it goes down to 3,000 foot deep. It, you drop off the continental shelf. And that's where I'm aiming for, because once I get there, I know I'm safe in terms of being blown back. I'm, I'm sufficiently offshore to do that. And then literally, it's literally an east-northeast direction back to the UK and the, the, Isle, of, the, Cilio, the Isle of Scillies. And I could almost have the same bearing, really, the whole way. Oh. And, um, but the weather conditions will dictate the, the exact route that I'll take. So if the winds are coming from the north, it'll push me a little bit further south. If the winds are coming from the south, it'll push me a little bit further north. And you just kind of like meander. I call it lazy S yeah. rowing across. You know, I'll just literally meander little zigzags, generally towards the UK. Yeah. And um, it'll be... The route's 3,100 nautical miles, but I'd probably end up going maybe like 
3,300 nautical miles just because you don't go in a straight line. Yeah, that actually seems more efficient than I would have originally thought. Yeah, so, I mean, the big difference for most people is I won't be using a GPS. Yeah. So I'm using what they call celestial navigation. So I'm using the sun and the stars to navigate with. Yeah. And um, just because I want it to be a true adventure, you know, I, I could quite easily use a GPS, right. um, a and chart. You're staring button. at a screen for three months. Yeah, exactly. And I'll put a waypoint on it and, I, and it'll just, I just row and it just takes me there. Right. Whereas I want to be involved in the navigation, you know, I actually want to make the decisions myself. I, I, you know, I want to take a fix when the sun's there, and go through that calculation of, you know, of trying to get it right, yeah. and, and kind of tuning into it. And, and I think it'd be more of an adventure by doing that. Yeah. What happens when you're completely lost? <laughs> you know, for, for sure that might happen. But I've always said to everyone, as long as I'm heading east. Okay. You know, I'll either bump into France or I'll bump into the UK. Okay. You know, in, in that kind of, you know, that kind of scenario. So if I'm hopelessly lost, which hopefully I won't be, I just head east mm. until I can kind of work it out. Okay. What is the pack job like on something like this? I mean, you're not fishing along the way. You got to take all your food. You probably have some buffer worked in. Do you make your own water or you have to bring water? Yeah, so the first thing is I've got 90 days rations okay. and they are dry rations. I, I need to put water with them to rehydrate them, to eat them. Mm. And is that for weight? Yeah, mainly weight and bulk. Yeah, yeah, but mainly weight actually, Matt, you know, because wet rations are weigh an awful lot of weight. Yeah. So I've got 300 kilograms of food on the boat. You know, it, it takes that much. Uh, so I've got 90 days rations and I've got 20 days what I call emergency rations, which are kind of smaller rations. In terms of water, I've got a water maker, and um, it's called a Schenker 30. It's battery powered, and uh, when it's on, in an hour, in an hour running, running for an hour, it will make 30 liters of water. And so it takes seawater and turns that into drinking water. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't taste like the water you get from the tap in New York for sure. Right. But it's palatable, and you can make a cup of tea with it and rehydrate your your food with it and maybe put some powder in the water that you drink just to take the flavor off it. Yeah. But uh, that's, that's the main, my main um, means of uh, getting drinking water. Okay. I know someone's gonna wish that I asked this on the other side, but how do you, how do you use the restroom? You just, you just <laughs> lean over the side? If the weather's good, it's just lean over the side, you know what I mean? Okay. There's no one to see, you know what I mean? Yeah. There's no vanity there. Yeah. But when it's rough, I've got a bucket. Okay. And I've got two colors. The black bucket is the poo bucket. Okay. And the yellow bucket is a washing up bucket. So, um, right. you know, distinguishing between the two. So I've got two buckets, one to do the washing up with and one to do the pooing in. Okay, cool. Hopefully some moonlight will let you know which one. Uh, yeah, is that yeah. Night. Holy shit. I already asked you about oars before this, but what's the critical, like, when you're talking about emergency planning, like, what are your most critical, what's your most critical equipment? And then sort of like emergency medical planning too, yeah. right? Yeah, so, I mean, if you think about the challenge, it's a rowboat, it needs the oars, and the engine's me. You know, that's it, you know, so the simplicity of that. Yeah. The oars are quite special, they're carbon fiber. You know, I was explaining to someone today that they're like 2,000 pounds, $2,000 a piece. And I've got, um, 
I've got six of them for redundancy. I'll be using two, obviously, you know, a pair, well, they call them a pair of oars, and I've got two other pairs to uh, back those up. And um, that should be enough, you know, in breakages terms, in, um, in that sort of sense. But medical terms, I, I used to be one of the patrol medics when I was in the SF world. And um, so my, my medical skills are okay. Yeah. You know, we're talking about trauma now, aren't we? You know, that's kind of your main skill set. Yeah. So on the boat, I've got all the, uh, the drugs, you know, the penicillins, the painkillers, you know, burns treatments, you know, diarrhea, constipation, you know, the usual sort of stuff, you know, tooth repair kits, all those kind of things, splints. And um, I've got a doctor on call. So in the UK, uh, a military doctor has volunteered to be my on-call doctor. Mm. So if I'm feeling poorly or something like that, um, I've got a, uh, a blood pressure cuff, I've got a pulse oximeter, you know, the sort of information that he might need to diagnose me. Yeah. And uh, so quite a comprehensive medical kit on the boat. Wow. Do you generate your own power? Because you get solar cells too. Yeah. But can you capture like from you rowing anything? No, so the, the main source of power in the batteries on the boat will be solar. Mm. And I've got 320 watts of solar panels, which okay. even on a, a, you know, a dappled sunlight kind of day is enough to recharge the batteries for what I need. Yeah, okay. But there's no backup outside of that. Uh, no. <laughs> this is like, so you have to document some portion of it, right? And you're going to, how are you logging kind of, you have a diary or a video video log or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, so it, there's three things going on there. So the um, I'm making a uh, documentary. Yeah. So there's lots of GoPros on there. If you do something like this, I think you should make a documentary. Yeah, so lots of GoPros on there doing, you know, capturing what's going on, that yeah. sort of thing. I've got a journal because I'm working with a sports psychologist back at the university in, back in the UK on uh, the psychology, psychological effects of being on your own for a period of time. Yeah. I should have called it a journal. A diary sounds like I'm my high school girl. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't going to say that, but... Okay. And then I've got the ship's log. Yeah. You know, what we call a ship's log, and that's not like bearings, distances, where I think I am, cloud cover, yeah. you know, sea temperatures, that type of thing. Yeah. And on the boat is a tracker. So the Ocean Rowing Society, to verify the row, they want to make sure you don't cheat. So right. you imagine, so that they, there's a tracker that pings a signal back to uh, you. How would you cheat? You might put a sail up or something like that. Oh, okay, yeah. You know, so yeah. it has been known that someone does that. Befriend a whale or something? Yeah, well, because they want to see that you go the same, so if you do 30 miles a day, you're going to do 30 miles a day all the way, aren't you? Yeah. You know, you're not going to magically do 100 miles in a day. Right. You know, I mean, that can happen because of currents and winds, but that's a one-off. Yeah. But all of a sudden, you're doing like 80 miles every day. Yeah. They'll, they'll probably question it a little bit. Hmm. There is that, um, so there's like this, you know, whatever famous like business management mantra or article that got written about the 20-mile-a-day hike uh, where... These, these two guys going after the South Pole. One guy decides they're going to march 20 miles a day, whatever the conditions, you know, they're going to get their 20 a day. The other guy says, we're going to, we're going to march when it's good. And, you know, we're going to hole up when, when the weather's not so bad. One guy gets snowed in, the other guy makes it there in, you know, half the time. To you, how important is maintaining a daily mm -hmm. 
uh, you know, track like your, your, you know, how many miles you're putting in a day versus are there any days off at all? Like, yeah. So, in- and, and are you rowing for like an hour, an hour off two hours? So how does that, like, how do you, how do you eat the elephant? Yeah. So when the conditions are in your favor, i.e. the wind's going where you want it to go and the wave patterns are generally pushing you in that direction, <clears throat> you'll probably make hay while the sun shines. So you'll row and it's, you're all going in the right direction. It, you know, the effort level that you put into row is, is, is less. Yeah. When those conditions are against you, i.e. the wind's on the nose of the boat and the wave pattern's slowing you down, you've got to come up with, you've got to think to yourself, is it worth rowing today? Yeah. You know, and what you can do is you can put what I call a sea anchor out. So you, you, you put the sea anchor out and it stops you drifting backwards. Mm. And so you just take a day off because the amount of effort you would have to put in to go one mile that day, you might as well lose two miles the other way. You know, you kind of like come up with that conundrum. You've got to be quite relaxed about it. Yeah. So that's my strategy. When I can make hay, either the wind and the waves are in my direction, I will row very hard all day long. But if it's against me, I, I'm literally going nowhere quickly. We're putting lots of effort in. Yeah. I'll put the power anchor out and take a minimal loss yeah. and, and make it up on another time. But what that will look like in a, in a daily event of rowing, so I, I see a 14-hour day, and in that 14 hours, I'll probably row for eight of those hours, maybe between eight and 10 hours. And I'll row for an hour, an hour and a half, and I'll take a break. And that's really to enable the body to refuel because an hour and a half rowing is, is exercise. Yeah. So I'll refuel, half an hour later, I'll do another an hour and a half. Stop for lunch, half an hour later, I'll start again. And, and that's pretty much going to be what the pattern is because I, I don't really ever want to empty the fuel tank because yeah. you can't recover for the next day when you do that. Yeah. And um, when it becomes dark at night, and bear in mind we're um, coming up towards the summer solstice now, May, June, so the days are quite long. Uh, I will sleep at night. So when it gets dark, I'll go asleep and uh, just drift. And because uh, sometimes it's it's quite dangerous to row at night on your own. Yeah. Because there's no ambient light. It's very dark, and you might not see a wave coming over the over the boat, and it might just wash you off the side of the boat. So most solo rowers tend to um, sleep at night mm. and just drift. If it rolls while you're sleeping, that might be a pretty interesting feeling, huh? Yeah, I'm, I'm fully expecting that to happen, actually, Matt. You know, really? one minute I'm asleep, and next minute I'm on the roof of the boat, and, you know, I've, I've gone over in a washing machine spin cycle. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? oh, but yeah. that, that is a pretty – and I've got a um, what, what we call in the UK a rugby scrum cap. So, the, you know, like you have American football. Like a little padded helmet. Yeah, it's like a padded yeah. helmet without the hard shell so you can yeah. sleep in it. And if the conditions uh, might mean I might get rolled over, I'll sleep in that and uh, put a gum shield in as well. Oh, shit. So that's my, my foul weather tactics. Oh, yeah. Uh, gum shield, like a mouthpiece? Yeah, yeah. So we call them gum shield, but okay. <clears throat> you call them mouthpiece. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. I hadn't heard that one before. Uh, man, you ever going to get out of the boat? No. So I don't plan going over the side. Okay. Purely because <clears throat> trying to get back into the boat is really hard. Just because the way you push, you know, you imagine going to a swimming pool. You push on the side of, you know, to get out of the water. Yeah. And it's solid, isn't it? And, you know, you can use your forces and levers to get out. Yeah. So in a rowboat, and it's kind of rounded bottom, so when I push on one side, it, it, it literally comes towards you. You lose all your power. Yeah. 
yeah. and you're scrabbling to get in. And it can be quite unnerving, you know, in, in, in the middle of the Atlantic that you can't get back in your own boat. Yeah. So most solar rowers won't get in the water on, unless oh. they have to do a repair or something along those sort of lines. Yeah. I would be so tempted to just like jump in, swim a lap around the boat, get back in. Yes. You're tethered. I saw some of your videos. You, yeah. you tethered in. Yeah. Tethers are pretty important coming from one military guy to another. <laughs> yeah. So you imagine, um, I mean, if I wasn't tied to the boat, tethered to it, and I fell in, the boat will continue. The wind will just push it away. It's from just me. faster than you, purely. Purely faster. You know, yeah. and you, if you don't catch it in the first 25 meters, you will never catch it, no matter what you do. And that's you gone. You know, that's it's terrifying. over. It's over in an instant. Yeah. So most solar rowers, and some of them don't, because they they think they'll be safer. You know, they'll think more about you know, you know, in that sort of they won't happen because they're thinking about it because they're not tied on. But it could be just a freak wave that comes when you're not looking. Yeah. So as soon as you're outside the cabin, you're clipped on. You you got a safety belt on. So if that does happen and the boat rolls over when you're rowing or a rogue wave comes, you know, you're tied to the boat. So when it comes upright, you know, you're still attached to the boat. Have you rolled while you're rowing? Not yet. No? Not yet, but um, yeah. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get that experience soon. Yeah, that's going to be wild. Yeah. What, uh, what kind of workup have you been doing? Because you obviously don't want to, like, peak too early. Yeah. Right? You don't want to... You don't want to mimic rowing 3,000 miles before you actually have to do yeah. it. So I, I worked with um, Leeds Beckett's sports science department. It's a university in the UK. They're one of the top sports science departments. And working for a year, we decided that you needed to build a diesel engine that, that basically burns fats in the human body rather than carbohydrates, you know, mm. glycogen stores. So for the last year, I've just built a diesel engine. You know, and I've tried to put on uh, five kilograms of uh, muscle mass, which is oh, five kilograms for you guys, which is sort of like 12 pounds of muscle mass, yeah. and um, which was successful. So I, I put on minimal body fat, put on some because it's just part of the process, you know, age process as well. But I put five uh, or 12 pounds of muscle on and built a diesel engine, you know, that you could row all day, you know, cardiovascular fitness type thing. And that's a sort of like 55% effort level. Yeah. It's almost like a fast walk, if you want to call that. But if you imagine doing a fast walk for 14 hours, you know, it, it needs a bit of conditioning and training for it. Yeah. So with the university, you know, using sort of like blood, blood tests, you know, uh, VO2 max tests, we came up with the ideal regime to, to get to where we are now. But I've not rowed a boat now for six weeks because... Boat had to get shipped here. I had to put a bit of a dog leg by Lucia to get here. And I rode it for the first time yesterday. And it, it felt great. You know, I was like, oh, I'm rowing, you know. Oh. And, I, and I said to the person that was helping me out doing a bit of steering, I said, look, you know, there's only another two and a half million oar strokes to go. <laughs> so you just took it for a spin, like in the East River? Or yeah. sorry, the Hudson? Yeah, so I'm taking it for a spin in the Hudson tomorrow, but it's literally the marina put it in by crane at one end of the marina. Yeah. And it's it's like half a mile down the marina to where I was going to berth it. So I got to row it yesterday for about half a mile and um, it felt really good. You know, yeah. she felt good in the water. Nice. You talked earlier about like your mental preparedness or you're working with 
people to to basically study this, you know, uh, three months of, you know, solitude. Have you done any, like, how have you prepared yourself for that? No, it's, it's, it's interesting, Matt. So I'm into a thing called mindfulness, you know, being able to focus on the, on the, uh, what you're at to at the, at the particular time, you know, where rather than thinking about what I'm going to do next, you know, I've got to pay the mortgage, you know, oh, someone's towed the car, you know, all that sort of stuff. You can just get rid of that clutter and just think, right, yeah. I'm going for a run. I'm just going to tune out and do that. And I'm the head coach at Hereford Triathlon Club, so I'm the sort of head coach. And I work with a lot of athletes there. And they get really anxious about things, you know, you know, just training things, running things, swimming type stuff. And it's just kind of like getting them to detune out of that and just focus in what's going on. And so I've worked with a professor in the, the university, a lady called Mariana. She's Portuguese. And she, we're just kind of working on a strategy in the morning for 10 minutes. It's, it's a little bit like meditation, but not quite meditation. Mm. And it just clears the mind of all the, the negative thoughts and just prepares mm. you for the, the day that's going ahead. And you just become more productive. But the, the important part of it really is you can sort of like come up with solutions quicker if a problem arises because you're not thinking about I've lost the house keys, you know, the car's been towed or something along those sort of lines. And, um, and you just kind of like tune into what's going on and start to enjoy it. Yeah. You know, and, and that's the big thing for me. Um, I, I said to Mariana, she, she asked me, you know, what did I, what do I want to achieve out of this? You know, all this time building up to it, getting sponsorship, raising money for charities, all that important stuff. But she said, what do you actually want to get out of it? And, you know, I, I said to her, when I get to the Isle of Sillies, the finish point, I want to look back across it and say, I don't want it to end yet because I've had such a good time. Mm. You know, even though I'm on my own, you know, I've enjoyed the experience. And hopefully the mindfulness of just getting into, the, into that moment will, um, will help me with it. Yeah. I can't imagine wanting to keep it going after three months, but that must be like a, just that next level of mindfulness. Yeah, it's a little bit like you get to the end and you're just like, and I've spoken to a lot of ocean rowers, solo ocean rowers, so they're getting to the end of it. And I spoke to one today, actually. He's, he's on a, a four crew this time. And he, he was almost disappointed it came to an end. Yeah. And uh, I tried to uh, a friend of mine called Rob Munslow, and he's rowed from St. John's to, um, to the Isle of Sillies. And, and I said, you know, what was, he, he said it, you know, he was sad it was coming to an end. You know, he's disappointed that his only little adventure, his little routine that he did every day, you know, that, that he was the master of. No one else could influence it apart from him. Yeah. You know, he, he said he was kind of sad that it finished. And then all of a sudden there was lots of people there, you know, and, and you've had three months of complete solitude. Yeah. And then your family's going to be there. People want to talk to you. People want to buy you a beer. You know, and it's almost going to be, probably going to be a little bit of overload. Yeah. So you are raising money through this, or you're supporting some charities? Yeah, so we, just like you, Matt, really, so I, I believe um, charity begins at home. Yeah. And um, so the main charity that's, that I'm raising money for on the adventure is the Special Air Service Regimental Association. And what they do is they look, over, they look after old veterans like us, Matt. You know, yeah. So when we've left, and they also look after serving soldiers as well. 
But more importantly, recently, <clears throat> they've created a uh, mental health program. It's called the Sentinel Program. And it's, it's, it's helping veterans that are in trouble. And um, I always say to people, when you, if you wake up and you trip over and you break your leg, you, you dial 911 and an ambulance turns up and helps you out, doesn't it? But if you wake up in the morning and you have a little mini, mini mental health crisis, A, you probably don't recognize you're having it because you've never had it and no one ever talks about it. But you're probably quite scared and you don't know who to turn to. You know, do I dial 911? Do I go to my local doctor? You know, what do I do? Do I see the pharmacist? So the idea of it's creating these sentinels is they're your peer groups. You've done selection with them. You know, you've done SF training. You, you work with them at some point, but you've all retired. And they all get mental health first aid training. And what that means is they've done a first aid course in mental health. Yeah. And they recognize the signs and symptoms of mental health. They can't help you because they're not a mental health professional. But what they can do is they can help you take you, you, know, take you to someone that can help you out. And um, so I'm raising money for that, yeah. you know, uh, that, that, that charity. And they've done some really good work. It's only been going for like um, 10 months. And they've helped a, a big bunch of guys, you know, SF guys. Yeah. And it's, it's, such a good, um, it, it's such a good initiative. I actually named the boat after it because Sentinel's a really good name anyway. You know, I think Sentinel's a really good name. Yeah. So it's a good name for a boat. Yeah. So th the money being raised is helping veterans, you know, and, um, you know, chatting to veterans over here and, you know, it, it's something that we're all kind of missing, I think, you know, in that kind of mental health thing. We don't really talk about it that much. Yeah. And there isn't that much of it about in um, the SF world in compared to the, the big army world. But um, there, when it does rear its head, it rears its head really big. And the other charity sat next to that is St. Michael's Hospice. And in the UK, a hospice is where you go to end your li where the end of life care. So you know, you've got cancer, or you you've got a rare form, you know, or you're just old and you, and you, you can't come to that time of life. Yeah. They, they provide the palliative care, and it's purely for Herefordshire, where the home of the SF is. And um, everyone I know in Herefordshire, the, host, the local hospice has um, touched their hearts at some point. Right? Yeah. And it's a charitable event. It's not a government-funded thing. It's, it's run by charitable donations. Yeah. So that's the second charity that um, I'm, I'm linked to. What you said about... Uh first aid for mental health is something I actually uh, I discussed with a couple of our former guests recently off off the show and just conceptually um, first aid right it's like you were you were a team medic I was a medic getting getting someone from the point of injury off the battlefield and then triaged care you know working up when someone's in a mental health crisis, and I'm no expert on this, I'm actually the opposite, I don't know anything about it, um, I would imagine that having some kind of first aid approach is very beneficial because you need to mitigate the crisis that's happening right now and then develop some kind of longer-term care plan. So I really like that aspect of what you said. Yeah, and that's exactly what it is, Matt. You know, and the... It's much better coming from someone you know. You know, so you, there's that kind of trust and a bond in there. And even if you don't know them, you, you know they've come from the same as your organisation as you. Because yeah. they might be a different peer group. They might have retired 10 years up, you know, before you. Or, and um, that, that initiative is, is really working well at the moment. Yeah. You know, and um, I, I, I'm a firm believer that, you know, other organisations are going to take that on board. Yeah. 
So if anyone wants to support the trip or watch you along the way, rowsentinel.com? Yeah, so rowsentinel.com, it's uh, uh, my son's best mate put the website together. He's um, an artificial intelligent guru in this kind of something I don't even understand. So he put the uh, webpage together. Okay. And on there is, is a donation button. So if you, if you want to donate, you know, that'd be very kind of anyone that wants to do that. You just press the rest button yeah. and it'll take you to where you give, give uh, money. But if you want to just follow the row, uh, if you go to rowcentral.com, there's a tracking page. So you can literally see where I am at any one point in time. Yeah. I heard we can also see where you think you are. Yeah, so uh, that's the funny thing. So everyone back who's got an internet connection and can go to rowcentral.com, they will see where I am. And when I get a fix, I will email it back to the web people and uh, they will put on there where I think I am. And so you'll know where I am, yeah. and you'll also know where I think I am, yeah. and you will see where the error is. Hopefully, it will be quite right. close. We'll see that lazy S. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Awesome. I gotta, hold on, stay there one second. So, Dai and I got you something for your trip. I know that packing is a, uh, space is at a premium, so you don't have to take it, but we were talking on the phone, we said we absolutely have to get one thing. <laughs> a Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Matt, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Oh, mate, that's uh, awesome. A Wilson volleyball, too, uh, if you want someone to keep you company. No, no. My son mentioned about this, actually. He said, he you, he? He, yeah, he said you need a Wilson, like, you know. So, uh, no, you and I, I appreciate that, Matt. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, thanks. Um, I mean, thanks for being on the show. No, this no. It's great. No, uh, it, it's an honor to be the first Brit. Oh, there we go. We, we Right on time. Right on time. Yeah. Right on time. Yeah, I mean, this was great, honestly. And, you know, while you were, I mean, just so happened that we're both in New York right now. And uh, I don't know, maybe I'll try to make an effort to see when you leave. Or I don't know who's going to be out there waving goodbye or something like that. Yeah, so I'm literally, boat will be ready by Sunday and I'm waiting for a weather window there. Yeah. The, the weatherman thinks that um, Thursday or Friday is looking good. Okay. So that's, that's what I'm planning on at the moment. Perfect. So by the time this airs, you'll be, I don't know, you'll be a few hundred miles out. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> As they say. Awesome. Thanks for being on again. No, Matt, it's been a privilege and great chatting. All right. Perfect. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. Be on the lookout for Ian. Well, uh, you already kind of know where to find him. At the time we recorded, Ian was planning to leave in mid-May. However, a couple weeks of adverse weather held him up. But uh, thankfully, and kind of serendipitously, he was able to depart New York City on Memorial Day. Uh, along with an escort of the NYPD and FDNY police boats, as well as the FDNY Pipes and Drums Corps playing him out of the harbor is quite spectacular. As I'm recording this last voiceover before your release, Ian's hunkered down weathering a three-day storm off the east coast of the U.S., but hopefully, by the time we air the episode, he'll have crossed over the continental shelf, be out at sea, and marked that off his route. Or route, I forget. Be sure to follow him on his website and social media, rowsentinel.com, at rowsentinel. Please consider a donation to the organiz organizations he's supporting. 
One last thing is we didn't ask Ian our show question of who are you today if you never served. However, I'm really looking forward to having him back on after he finishes this, uh, you know, this incredible trek he's on. We'll ask him then. As always, thanks for listening to us. Please subscribe, rate, review, follow, and join us next time on Thank You Now What. Thank you.